This episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast is brought to you in part by Fun in the Rain by Marcy Lee. You can go ahead and pick that up at Amazon.com and find out more about this fabulous book. After spending screen time on her mother's smartphone, Elise's dad would like to play with her outdoors. It is raining and Elise does not want to go out and play. There is a package at the front porch. Will the contents inside help Elise to have fun playing in the rain? We will all have to find out. That's why you have to go over to Amazon.com and pick up Fun in the Rain by Marcy Lee. I would like to give thanks to the ancestors, known and unknown. Those who have paved the way for us to survive this moment of time. And to have a reference point to use as a blueprint to deal with these hellish times we are living in. I will also like to give honor and reverence to the woman of the universe for your superior work, for bringing forth the spiritual information through the triple stage of darkness of your womb and giving birth to God. We would like to give reverence to the universe and praises to the indigenous. My name is Raheem Shabazz, and this is Necessary Blackness Podcast. Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. with award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic because the mind of the conscious man or woman recognizes no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought. Yo, check out the award-winning docuseries, Elementary Genocide. This docuseries provides a critical expose of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and the connection between slavery, capitalism, and the prison industrial complex. This docuseries features Dr. Umar Johnson, Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Cress-Welsing, Killer Mike, David Banner, Professor James Small, Kaba Kamene, and so many other people. Check out Elementary Genocide, the school-to-prison pipeline, Elementary Genocide 2, the Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration, and the latest installment, Elementary Genocide 3, The Academic Holocaust. It's all available now at elementarygenocide.com. Tune in for the drop. I am Dr. Kira Taylor, and when I'm tired of listening to fake news, I will listen to some real news, and I will check into the Necessary Blackness podcast with my friend Raheem Shabazz. Aheem Shabazz is one of my guys from way back, and you're now listening to his show, Necessary Blackness Podcast. Stay tuned. This is a cool of Cultivated Roots Media, and I choose to tune into Necessary Blackness because staying connected to my blackness is very necessary. Yo, that's what I'm talking about, man. You'll hear it here first. <laughs> now our feature presentation. Peace and Black Power family. This is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are here. For another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast. Now, I was on a brief hiatus, as many of you know. I've been working on my next film project, which is called Contraband Flesh. And it's the true story of Africatown. And I've been working hard. Our application just got approved by Sundance, which is a big... Uh, honor for us because anybody that knows when you submit your application to Sundance it's a long and strenuous process so that had me a little bit busy 
I wanted to do a podcast on Martin Luther King Jr. for his holiday, but I was inundated with work. But we're going to talk a little bit about Martin Luther King and how his history is whitewashed. And then we're going to talk about the radical Martin Luther King that we come to know in his last years. Then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Kamala Harris and her presidential bid for 2020. And what does she have to offer specifically to black America? We're going to talk about that and more, so y'all stay tuned. During the resolution commemorating Martin Luther King Jr., Republican Representative Lori Sane from Colorado stated, Whites and blacks was lynched in nearly equal numbers. Come on. White people will always try to present misleading and not factual information to change the narrative and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. to fit their agenda. If we're going to talk about the reconstruction and lynching, 73% of the 4,800 people lynched between 1882 and until 1968, the same year that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, they were all black. And they were not lynched because of the political belief. It was because the color of their skin. Now let's listen to Republican Lori saying blatant lies as she tried to whitewash history on Martin Luther King Day. Standing in the moral arc of history today as we celebrate a reverend that changed history for all Americans. We have come a long way on that arc since the Reconstruction when whites and blacks alike were in nearly equal numbers lynched for the crime of being Republican. Today, we have the whitewashing of Martin Luther King. They don't speak about the last year of his life where he spoke about the three evils and called for a radical change. Here is an excerpt that speaks of Martin Luther King of 1968. Dr. King was a democratic socialist who was committed to radical racial justice. We have to stop lying to ourselves. We have to stop picking his bones clean and confront what he actually called us to be. When we celebrate Dr. King, we think about the Montgomery bus boycott, and we tell that story from the bus boycott to the I Have a Dream speech and the March on Washington. And it's part of a standard story we tell ourselves about the black freedom struggle, that it's accepted by mainstream society. It's a story that uh, uh, it begins in the 20th century uh, with uh, uh, the founding of the NAACP. And then we jump from the NAACP all the way to uh, Brown v. Board of Education, and then the Montgomery bus boycott, and then uh, the student sit-ins, and, and then the March on Washington, and then Selma, and then King's murder. It fixes Dr. King in one place because he, he's, he's palatable there, because he's talking about love. By the time King is murdered, he's still talking about love. He was a preacher after all, but he's, he's speaking to the three evils, the peril of militarism, the effects of capitalism, and of course, the ongoing uh, sin of racism. Dr. King was also engaged in a radical politics because he understood that radical change was necessary if the country was actually going to be saved. 
there's this sense in which Dr. King has always invoked the Dr. King of 1963, the Dr. King of 62, 61, the Dr. King of the Montgomery bus boycott in order to constrain the scope and extent of our politics. But when we talk about Dr. King of 68, when he's talking about a fundamental reordering of, of our economic reality, when he's thinking about and trying to organize a poor people's campaign, where he's going to bring poor people from around the country, black people, brown people, white people from around the country to build a tent city in Washington, D.C. to bring to the fore the situation, the circumstance of poor people around the country. That's not the Dr. King of I Have a Dream. That's the Dr. King who understood that we needed a radical act of civil disobedience to jar the conscience of the nation. Remember by the time he was shot down on April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was calling for a fundamental reordering of, of America's economic system. He understood that racial justice was tied to economic justice. Right? He understood that a system, an economic system, which presupposed that there was disposable people could only produce a society that was predicated upon evil. And so he challenged the very assumptions of the country. And he did so from a moral standpoint. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back and we are here on Necessary Blackness Podcast. And I am your host, Raheem Shabazz. And today we are talking about Kamala Harris. And we are asking the question, is she a criminal justice reformer or a defender of the status quo? So, on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram, things have been heating up and people are asking questions. And a lot of people are getting mad. And for the life of me, I don't understand why individuals get mad when people ask questions because these are very pertinent questions that. We need to know. Now, we do know that there has been a long-standing tradition that politicians, when they're trying to get elected, they always visit the black church and they participate in the latest dance craze to pander to black folks. But those days are over. We are the dawn of a new day where black faces in high places don't mean nothing. Because we had eight years of Barack Obama, and we ain't doing too well, black family. So we have to no longer accept people, or politicians for that matter, because of their party affiliation or because the color of their skin. Remember, all skin folk ain't kin folk. I want to talk about several of the arguments that is going on on Twitter and one of the arguments is that she's not black and people are questioning her blackness. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that she is a black woman, um, an intelligent black woman at that. However, that doesn't mean that she aligns herself with black America. We have to know and understand who individuals are. And we do that by searching their background. Now, I'm a firm believer, this is my opinion, that the most important part of a woman's coming into full awakening is the man that she chooses. She hasn't chosen a black husband. That's just my opinion. Does that disqualify her from being president? No. But that's something to think about. 
Now, there's other individuals that are talking about when she was 30 years old, she dated Willie Brown, and that was her political tie to become the district attorney and in return to become the uh, attorney general of California and then ultimately the senator. They're saying that he was still married, but he was separated from his wife. I'm not going to get into that. You know, if she did, whatever type of relationship they had, everybody make mistakes. I'm not saying that was a mistake. But um, y'all current president, he frequents porn stars, and he likes to grab them by the pussy. So if he can be president, I don't see why she can't. So that's not an argument that I would even indulge in. But that's something that they are arguing on Twitter, and I find it real funny. But let's get back to these tangible results that we are asking for. Because we got to have something that's specific for black America. She spoke about having Medicaid for all. She spoke about having debt-free college tuition. She talked about a lot of things that benefit everyone as a whole. But what have she spoken about that specifically benefits black America? I was listening to Roland Martin, and I don't always agree with Roland Martin, but he said something that was very profound. He talked about in the first 60 days of Obama being elected president, the LBG community gave him a 54-page agenda of what they wanted. And they got legislations passed. The immigration community, they got immigration executive orders signed for them. Everyone received something except black America. So what we have to do and what we're learning to do is to ask, what is your agenda for black America? What specifically you going to do that benefits black America. Now, we got to ask those questions. And many people are asking those questions and people are getting mad. I'm telling you on Twitter, they are on fire right now. Now, one of the person that is asking the question is Tariq Nasheed, filmmaker from Hidden Colors. He's holding the line and he's asking that we get some corrective action towards foundational black Americans in the form of tangible resources. If you go on Twitter right now, it's a hashtag that's tangible2020. Follow that hashtag because these are some of the black agenda that is being put forward that anybody that wants the black vote is going to have to address. And I think that's what we need to do as a community. That's what we need to do as a collective is to develop a black agenda and ask politicians which one of y'all is going to adhere to this agenda. Now, before I get into that black agenda, and I'm going to read off some of the mandates that has been put forth, I want to talk about Kamara... Harris policies and how they was detrimental to a lot of people in the black community. And what we're going to do right now, we're going to go to a CNN 
town hall meeting and we're going to listen to the audio. There was an individual that asked some questions about her past policy as a prosecutor and the detrimental effect that it had on the community and that continues to have on the community. Because under her leadership, more black males and females was locked up than any time before. Under her leadership, she was opposed to legalizing marijuana, which we know adversely affect those that are in black America because we are the ones that are arrested at alarming rate more than any other ethnic group. She was for the death penalty and a lot of other policies. So let's go to that audio real quick, and then I'm going to come back with some commentary on the black agenda. Good evening, Senator. Thank you Hi. for being here. Um, your position, you position yourself as aligned with the progressive movement to make criminal justice less punitive and racist, yet your record as a prosecutor shows that you embrace the tough-on-crime mentality. You've defended California's death penalty, and as California's attorney general, your office opposed the release of nonviolent prisoners and violated the constitutional rights of various drug defendants. How do you reconcile your contradictory past with what you claim to support today? I've been consistent my whole career. Um, my career has been based on an understanding, one, that as a prosecutor, my duty was to seek and make sure that the most vulnerable and voiceless among us are protected. And that is why I have personally prosecuted violent crime that includes rape, child molestation, and homicide. And I have also worked my entire career to reform the criminal justice system, understanding, to your point, that it is deeply flawed and in need of repair, which is why, as Attorney General, for example, I led the Department of Justice, which is the largest state Department of Justice in any state in California, and implemented the first of its kind in the nation, implicit bias and procedural justice training for police officers. It is why I created the first in the nation for any Department of Justice, an open data initiative that we named Open Justice, for the first time making transparent and showing the public statistics around deaths in custody, arrest rates by race, and making that information available to the public. I instituted a policy around requiring the agents who worked in my division, which is the first of its kind for a state agency, to wear body cameras. I created an initiative back when I was DA, and this is when, by the way, this is the 90s and the, and the early 2000s, where you could talk to DAs around the country and you'd mention the word reentry and they didn't know what you were talking about. This is when there was a tough on crime mentality and I created one of the first in the nation initiatives that was focused on re-entering former offenders by getting them jobs and training and counseling. And it ended up being something that thankfully in these ensuing 15 years is something that is regularly talked about by district attorneys. But back when we created this, that was not happening. On the issue of the death penalty, I am personally opposed to the death penalty. I've always been opposed to the death penalty. And that's not going to change. It is a flawed system. It is applied unequally based on race and based on income. It is something that we know is flawed in that it is a final judgment. But we have seen many cases where DNA has proven that the person who was sentenced to death was not, in fact, guilty. And it is something that, frankly, cost the taxpayers of this country a lot of money and is, is actually would be cheaper to let people spend their life and end their life in jail as opposed to that punishment of the death penalty. So on all of those issues, I will tell you that I am proud of my record, um, but I also do know 
There is a whole lot more work to be done in this country around criminal justice and reform of the system. We have a problem in this country of mass incarceration. We have a problem in this country of not having adequate response and consequence when young people who are unarmed are shot. We have a real problem in this country about disproportionate application of the law based on who is charged with a crime, what kind of bail is set for them, what kind of sentencing they, they receive, based on race. Um, it, and there is a lot of work to do. That's the work that I've been doing also in the Senate, of focusing on that, such as a bill that I have that would seek to reform the bail system in the United States and ultimately get rid of the cash bail system. Understanding that is disproportionately applied in a way that causes people who do not have $20,000 in their back pocket to have to sit in jail for what could be weeks, months, and years waiting trial versus the people who have money get out while they're waiting trial. It's an economic justice issue as well as a criminal justice issue. But I appreciate your point. It is a flawed system, deeply flawed, and we have got to reform it and everyone has to be on board. And we can't accept false choices. Because I think we all realize it's a deeply flawed system, but we also want to make sure that when a woman is raped, a child is molested, one human being is killed by another human being, we also want to make sure there's going to be consequence and serious all right, consequence all right, for those all right. crimes. So now, as y'all can see, she really deflected from answering the question. And she is not the progressive prosecutor that many will lead you to believe she is. When you take a look at her record, when she became San Francisco's district attorney, the felony conviction rose from 52% to 67% in three years. Let me say that again. When she became a San Francisco district attorney, the felony conviction rose from 52% to 67% in three years. She defended... California's three-strike law, which for minor nonviolent felony offenses, if you was considered a career criminal, you was given life in prison. I don't know if many of y'all heard about the individual that stole a slice of pizza and he received life in prison. That was under her watch. Uh, she also had the anti-truancy law. And under this anti-truancy law, parents bear the burden of going to prison if their children was missing a certain amount of days of school and was considered uh, truancy. Now, these are the same parents, poor black parents, who are unable to represent themselves adequately in the justice system. Mind you, the same justice system she now says is unfair. Now, many people know that, now we all know that parents will do all they can and all within their power to make their kids go to school. But there are some kids that will defy that and you would think that they're in school and they're playing hooky. So for these parents that may work two and three jobs, under the false pretense of thinking that their children went to school and didn't show up at school, they are liable to go to jail under the law that she enacted. Now, when she's questioned on the policy of the anti-truancy law, she used it in a way where she says that it was a scare tactic and that it actually worked and that enrollment in schools 
went up significantly. But what she don't tell you is that there were several parents that actually went to jail under this law that she enacted. And she actually gives commentary on the law and she laughingly and jokes as if, you know, this law didn't adversely affect those that was her constituents. I would not be standing here were it not for the education I received. And I know many of, many of us will say the same thing. And I believe a child going without an education is tantamount to a crime. So I decided I was going to start prosecuting parents for truancy. Well, this was a little controversial in San Francisco. <laughs> and frankly, my staff went bananas. They were very concerned because we didn't know at the time whether I was going to have an opponent in my re-election race. But I said, look, I'm done. This is a serious issue, and I've got a little political capital, and I'm going to spend some of it. And this is what we did. We recognized that in that initiative... As a prosecutor in law enforcement, I have a huge stick. The school district has got a carrot. Let's work in tandem around our collective objective and goal, which is to get those kids in school. So to that end, on my letterhead, now let me tell you something about my letterhead. When you're the DA of a major city in this country, usually the job comes with a badge. And there is often an artistic rendering of said badge on your stationery. So I sent a letter out on my letterhead to every parent in the school district outlining the connection that was statistically proven between elementary school truancy, high school dropouts, who will become a victim of crime, and who will become a perpetrator of crime. We sent it out to everyone. A friend of mine actually called me and he said, Kamala, my wife got the letter. She freaked out. She brought all the kids into the living room, held up the letter, said, if you don't go to school, Kamala's going to put you and me in jail. <laughs> yes, we achieved intended effect. So there you have it, family. That is who the Democrat Party is pushing to be the next president in 2020. She has the answer to her record on mass incarceration, uh, criminal justice reform. And many other issues, I'm sure, that's going to come to the forefront. Now, I want to be the first to say that if you're looking for a president without no blemish on their record, you're not going to find that. So there are going to be other candidates that come and their record may be harsher than hers. You have to make the decision what policy procedures that directly affect you and you want to see implemented. For me, mass incarceration, criminal justice reform is a big thing. It might not be a big thing to you, but ultimately, you're going to have to make a decision. But what we're going to do, we're going to make a decision right now. We're going to go to a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the black agenda. There was a sister that put up a post under the hashtag Tangible 2020, and she listed a black agenda. And I think this is one that is very pertinent and that we need to look at. So we're going to discuss that when I come back from this quick commercial break. Peace and black power family. 
This is Raheem Shabazz. Persons interested in broadcasting a commercial can reach us via email at necessaryblacknesspodcast at gmail.com. Necessary Blackness is distributed on all major podcast platforms iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, SoundCloud, Podomatic, and Google Play. We'll also promote your business and product across our various social media networks, reaching over 100,000 people daily. Necessary Blackness Podcast is independently owned, and we do not accept sponsorship dollars from corporations. We are supported by the people such as yourself, who know that in war, the first casualty is the truth. We are at war with racism and white supremacy. We must continue to tell the truth. Support us by purchasing your Necessary Blackness t-shirt by sending an email to necessaryblacknesspodcast at gmail.com. All right, all right. We're back from our quick commercial break. And for those that are just joining us, my name is Raheem Shabazz, and you are tuned in to Necessary Blackness Podcast. We are on each and every Wednesday. You can catch us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and several other online distribution outlets for podcasts. So, Let's talk about the black agenda because that's something that we need to have. That's something that needs to be front and center for any politician that is trying to get our vote. We got to ask them, what are you doing specifically for black America? The Bible says you have not because you ask not. So black America is asking you, what are you going to do? specifically for us. So this is where the black agenda comes in. You ask, what is the black agenda? The black agenda is tangible, quantified resources in various forms allotted specifically for native black American descendants of slaves and African descendants of slaves. So some of the things that are asked for is land allotment, Government grants for the purpose of starting and or operating businesses, reparation payments for chattel slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, the second middle passes, the third middle passes, contraband camps, the sabotage of reconstruction, failure to uphold the 1866 Indian Treaty, Black Holes, Jim Crow, extrajudicial murder in the form of thousands of lynching, and racial terrorism against and towards Native Black Americans, African descendants of slaves. And it also asks that we be considered a protective special status specifically for Native Black American descendants of slaves and African descendants of slaves. And we need to be under a special class that's separate from the classification of minorities people of color, immigrants, poor people. There's a lot more that's on this, um, such as the repel and overturning of the Supreme Court decision of Dred Scott versus Sanford. If y'all don't know about the Dred Scott ruling, y'all need to look that up. And it asks for restitution and other different forms. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to post this on my Instagram and I'm going to post it on my Twitter so y'all can check out the full document. Unfortunately, if you follow me on Facebook, I'm not going to be able to 
posted on Facebook because as of now, I have been suspended for 30 days, which is nothing new. Y'all know I always get suspended. So these are some of the things that black America needs to have. These are some of the things that any politician that is running for the presidential office and expects to be the next commander-in-chief of the United States of America, they need to answer to this. I'm not going to keep y'all long. I am a little bit under the weather today, but I will be back next week, same time, same place. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube by Put in Necessary Blackness podcast in the search engine. Make sure you continue to support Necessary Blackness podcast by purchasing our t-shirts. Make sure you consider sending us a donation because remember, we are independently owned. We do not accept corporate dollars. This is Raheem Shabazz and this is a conclusion of Necessary Blackness Podcast. Peace and power, black family. I'm out of here. And Riley's question is, I'm sure you've been hearing this too, this is a criticism we're hearing of you from the left as you entered the fray. Um, And they talk about things that you did as attorney general or as prosecutor or or, or as a district attorney in San Francisco. Let me just ask about one of them, um, which is uh, when you were attorney general, you opposed a, a legislation that would have required your office to investigate fatal shootings involving police officers. Why did you oppose that bill? So I did not oppose the bill. Um, I had a process when I was attorney general of not weighing in on bills and and initiatives because as attorney general, I had a responsibility for writing the title and summary. So I did not weigh in. But behind the scenes, I'm going to tell you, I, I compare my record to any prosecutor, any elected prosecutor in this country in terms of the work that I have done to reform the criminal justice system. I am a daughter of parents who met when they were active in the civil rights movement. Nobody had to teach me about the disparities in the criminal justice system. I was born knowing what they are. I made a conscious decision to become a prosecutor because I understood if we're going to reform systems, yes, there is going to be the power that we have on the outside, and also we need to have people on the inside where the decisions are being made, which is why, as the chief prosecutor, I was able to not ask permission and to create initiatives that became models. The United States Department of Justice designated the initiatives that I created as a model of innovation in law enforcement for the United States. So there is my record, and you know there are some people who just believe that prosecutors shouldn't exist, and I, and I don't think I'm ever gonna satisfy them. Um, but I will also say that um, there is so much more work to do, and do I wish I could have done more? Absolutely. I do wish I could have done more.